Hello, and welcome to another Palladium podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee. I'm here with Ash Milton, our managing editor. Hey, everyone. So today we're doing another one of our Topic of the Week podcasts. Every week we have uh, a number of discussions internally with the Palladium community, with the editors, with our close intellectual collaborators on some topic of interest. Last week, or you know, this week, uh, depending on how you're looking at this, was the billionaire situation. What's the role of billionaires in society and generally large-scale private wealth? So we're going to try to summarize some of the things we've learned over the course of the week and push through to satisfactory answers on remaining questions. So let's start with a sort of brief summary of how we're looking at the problem. Basically, we have these these kind of immense private individuals or semi-private individuals controlling wealth in society. What does that actually mean, first of all? Um, The way we like to frame it is that the meaning of that of large scale wealth is or, or just wealth in general is that it's about who is commanding part of the economy. Wealth is the right to command the economy. If that's liquid wealth, it's sort of this abstracted right that you can spend if it's concentrated uh, in in the form of a particular firm like Amazon or SpaceX, then you are responsible for, or you are you have the right to command that piece of uh, economic resources. And and this is sort of our interpretation of what property rights is about. It's about it's how we divide up who is commanding uh, and planning the use of which resources. Yeah, the and, socially recognized right of control, basically. Yes, and and so that I, I think that's like a different uh, framing from a, a lot of the usual discussion on this, which is that you know people have these ideas that that uh, you know wealth is this purely personal thing, so it needs to be equal, or or it's you know just justified a priori through some kind of liberal reasoning yeah it's not oriented to anything in particular right. it just kind of exists as the state of nature right and 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 so we we really prefer to try to analyze what is the purpose of this thing in society if you think about society as a holistic kind of almost an organism what is the purpose of this particular institution in this case large scale private wealth well the purpose is you have someone commanding a chunk of the economy and so that's that's the frame through which we analyze the whole question. So then the question is, okay, what do we think about this? How should it be organized? Should these people be bigger? Or should they be smaller? Like in the sense of should they have more or less control over the economy uh, versus a, a wider mass of individuals or versus larger institutional players like institutional investors and, and government agencies and so on. So these, these are sorts of the questions that we're we're looking at, I guess this is an important point, whenever we're talking about redistributing wealth, we are talking about redistributing economic control. And the question is who should have the economic control? Uh, who and, and the answer there, of course, is, uh, or in our, our way of looking at it is, has been that we're looking at who is going to do the right thing with that. It's you are planning some part of the economy. Now, you who is going to plan 
that part of the economy to the most productive ends, whether that be the generation of further wealth, the solving of, of social problems that kind of don't fit within the paradigm of, of what we call wealth or something else. And so, so this again gives us a, a framework on which to analyze this question. So that's yeah, and I, I want to point out it, an immediate utility of this definition. Um, I think obviously when these discussions come up, the discussion about billionaires, one of the immediate traps you just get into is this long discussion on, you know, is it can someone really produce a billion dollars in wealth? Has someone earned a billion dollars? And I think one of the great things about this way of looking at it is that. This question basically becomes not entirely irrelevant, but we sidestep it. We're, we're going to essentially uh, flip away from that question, and we're going to use a language that's more about optimality and how effective someone is, someone is at controlling uh, sections of the economy, and whether they use wealth and command wealth, which also means commanding human labor, right? Yes, um, the organization towards- of labor. Yeah, exactly. And and does that get commanded toward a socially good and useful end? And this is uh, way more important, I think, than, you know, obviously you can have very talented people who are necessary for an organization. Maybe that organization can't exist without them, but it rarely, if ever, happens that a person is sufficient in an organization. They always need, you know, to collaborate with other people with other people uh, yeah, working towards with, some kind and, of end. And and with the surrounding infrastructure of society. I mean, there's always this claim like, you know, you, you hear things um, that billionaires haven't earned their wealth because actually it was the, so- the social structures around them that allowed them to, you know, like the law and, and the general mass of educated people and so on that allowed them to to sort of build up the, that empire. But again, our, our framing on this problem is intended to sidestep a lot of those, those conversations, which tend to really not go anywhere and, and yeah, get into- Yeah, you end up having to make up some definition of what it means to properly earn or wholly earn something. Right, like this is useful right. At all. I, I, a lot of that is kind of based in this- uh, It's the Lockean idea of property that in some sense, if you mix your labor with resources, uh, you know, there's a kind of naturally inherent right to the fruits of that that exists. And obviously, in American society, uh, we don't really have a wholly Lockean idea of property. You have eminent domain and things like that. These have been established for decades, yeah. uh, if not more than a century. But I think that the instincts that exist in this discussion are uh, quite Lockean. Yeah, well, the American Lockean society. instincts come up a lot, and I think I think basically the the Lockean, a simplistic Lockean view just does not capture what's actually going on. Does not allow you to analyze this question properly. Right, and it severs it from the yeah. goals that we have as societies as well. I, I mean, I like we bad. ultimately we have to come back to Aristotle, right? As as always, <laughs> the first line of of politics. Uh, I think it's the first line. It's very very early. Is the man is a political animal in that we are not self-sufficient. We exist in a society, you know, in the, in the words of a recent movie, we live in a society. And in other words, we have these structures of collaboration with each other, structures of mutual obligation. We're working together on a collective enterprise that is society. And, and so to, to reduce it down to these like individual, like a pure, a pure grounding in individual rights and individual 
mm-hmm. it's na- like an, an individual rights version of natural law and so on is actually to, to kind of miss the point of society. And so whenever we're a- asking any of these important social questions, we need to have, first of all, that that grounding in the question of society, but also something we like to do is kind of sidestep all the usual mess by trying to find what is our ground of purpose? What is the sort of the the ultimate end of the thing that we're looking at such that we can analyze whether it is appropriate to that end? Like whenever you have a, a dispute in society about how things should be organized or, or um, you know, whether something is wrong or, or right or whatever, there's, there's all these disputes, there's all this different logic going on, but often, perhaps almost all the time, you can dig deeper, you can go up a couple levels and say, okay, what was the purpose of any of these ideas? What were the purpose of any of these structures? What's the, what's the kind of lowest common denominator purpose structure of this whole debate so that we can have some ground on which to stand if we have to redrive a bunch of those concepts and know which ones to throw out. And so in this case, this is what we're doing with with this whole billionaire question. Yeah, I, I want to point out a second application here too, which I think might be less obvious, but I think is immensely useful, which is that this subverts the strict private-public distinction yes. as well. Um, you know, to have someone in control of some segment of the economy that can apply to Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos as much as it applies to a figure like Robert Moses, uh, you know, or uh, you know, the head of NASA, say, especially in its heyday. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you have public. Yeah, you, you can have figures in public institutions personally exercising great control over parts of the economy and. Yeah, there are obviously institutional difference there, the differences there. There might be differences of incentive and so on. But I, I think that it's usually more useful to, rather than looking at, you know, is this private wealth or public wealth, to actually look at the nature of a billionaire's uh, sort of personal empire or section of control. Like looking at Amazon, say, as an institution rather than as just this general category of a business or private right. wealth yeah, it's is going to tell you way more. Yeah, like each of the billion, I mean, look, billionaires, there are less, I believe, less than 3,000, maybe around 3,000 in the world. Um, you know, especially if we take out uh, ones where a lot of the wealth is sort of purely financial, although even in those cases, they often invest their wealth into networks and institutions of various kinds. Mm-hmm. Each one of these little empires is going to be fairly unique in ways that I think you basically can't ignore when you're doing any kind of useful analysis on this question. Yeah, well, you this, have to this, ask, how is the wealth being built and used? Yeah, and this this kind of follows from Peter Thiel's uh, monopoly thesis, right? That any successful business or successful empire at scale is inherently monopolistic because once you're in competition, you're just getting all the interestingness at least drained out of you. Um, and and so at the at this scale, they tend to find uh, niches that they can monopolize, which means that there's just an inherent uniqueness in every one of those niches. They're not all in the same business. They're in different businesses. And because if they were in the same business, it would just be uh, too much of a desperate competition. And that's actually something that that uh, you avoid. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder if maybe that's, uh, now that we've covered a little bit of how we're thinking about this, maybe that's an interesting place to start our discussion. Um, you know, to be a billionaire, I think, is almost by definition to have uh, this kind of localized natural monopoly uh, or, you know, I, I think it's Warren Buffett, right, who has that metaphor of the moat right. that you build. I, you know, I, I'd like to talk about in what way, like, what is the actual utility of that? What, why can it be useful to have, first of all, a kind of wall against harsh levels of competition? And why can it be useful to have uh, a single person exercising fairly decisive control over that kind of empire? Yeah. Um, do you want to get us started on there? I know you've, you've sure. I mean, well. like we can. I, I think that's an interesting question. Why is it useful to have these walls and monopolies in society? Um, I mean, implicitly, we're making an assumption that they are useful and not just some natural feature that we better get rid of. But I am. Uh, let Let's go through the argument. I think it's actually analogous to the idea of private property and the idea of intellectual property and a bunch of things like that various there are legally granted monopolies and examining the purpose structure of those legally granted monopolies can give us a ground to stand on for the analysis of other ones as well um the the purpose of the legally granted monopolies is that you want to create a situation where people don't have to kind of do a race to the bottom thing defending uh, their control of especially things that they themselves created. Like you want it to be possible to plan a longer term empire. So the, like if you can't plan a longer term empire, you can't actually build up wealth. And so we provide these legal mechanisms like intellectual property and, and uh, private property in general, where you're able to get control of some right of ownership of some resource and you are able to not there thereafter not worry about whether someone else is going to take that away from you and and so and in some cases this is something that you've built if i go into my garage and i build some piece of machinery or if i go on my computer and you know write some program that i don't release but i use it in private uh or or behind kind of a service architecture or something I own that thing. I don't have to worry about uh, other people sort of taking that away from me, profiting essentially at the expense of my work. But the, the, the reason for that is I'm able to then know that I can make that investment uh, beforehand and then uh, know that I can plan as if I now own the result of that investment. It enables a longer term planning. Right. And, and it invaders higher higher risk planning too, I would say. Right, right, right. Because right. well, it, it removes a, a bunch of dollars. risks. It removes it removes a bunch of risks, right? Mm -hmm. The ability to have a wall around your workshop. Like it, it's like imagine you have a workshop, right? Your workshop has a lot of valuable tools. It has a lot of valuable resources in it that you're using to build whatever it is you're building. If you don't have a wall around your workshop that keeps the the copper stealers out and stuff, you're gonna you're gonna have a really bad time. And not only that, whatever you were trying to work on isn't gonna get done. 
So it's important to have these spaces in society where there is a moat around some area, which is someone's workspace, where they are able to plan the use of those resources rather than just defend the use of those resources. Right. And again, right, this is the logic that applies to both private billionaire empires, but also to public agencies. Yeah. The point of a space program, for example, that's publicly run is that you have a moat of legal state-backed protection against a, a project that is probably not profitable, at least in the near run, uh, is going to take a lot of mistakes, is going to take a lot of risk. And so you can do uh, the sort of crazy, but like, you know, experiments with a high degree of potential for human progress, right? The, this is like the the, the Schumpeterian... Uh, groundbreaking innovation that mm -hmm. can drive society forward but a lot of these uh require the moat around them in one form or another and so a billionaire empire is one form of this a public agency yeah. is another form and in practice the outsized control that certain individuals tend to have in a lot of these things um happens in both of those yeah well, i mean i i've uh i've heard it put very well once uh, I forget where I got this, but if we think of the economy as an economic plan, there is this economic plan to actually make that tractable to plan. You have to factorize the plan into chunks small enough for, uh, you know, particular people to work on because ultimately it's people who are doing the planning. You need to factorize it into chunks small enough for a person to work on. And for that to be the case, that that factorization needs to involve things you need to put up fences and, and property boundaries in order so that when I am planning my little piece of the economy, I can be assured that someone else isn't going to come along, jump over my fence and start planning the use of my resources in ways that work at cross purposes. In other words, we need to prevent theft. Um, like, like theft is sort of a, a violation of, of these factorization boundaries of how we're planning the economy. I want to be able to plan the use of the resources that I have a charge over uh, I don't want the, my next door neighbor to start planning the use of my resources because then I can't accomplish what I'm supposed to be doing or what I'm trying to be doing. Yeah, I, th I think you've hit you've hit on something important there. Uh, no, notice, I, I want to say it this way: the utility of a billionaire empire is that it is uh, a planned economy, right? At least to a degree, right? No, yes. Not that it isn't interacting with markets; it obviously is. Well, the market. But... I, I mean, the key thing about that factorization is that the market and the notion of property rights is one of the major the major mechanisms we use to actually accomplish that factorization of the economy into uh, manageable chunks. Right, exactly. And it's like you have a, um, a set of institutions that respond to the broader environment you're working in, right? I mean, th this, in, in like the Hayekian view of markets, right, this is kind of the actual mechanism at play. There are these exchanges and revelations of information as you work in price systems and so on. And uh, what you have in in a, a billionaire empire or, or any corporation really is this kind of section of the economy uh, and of, of labor and so on where there is coordination over the thing, there is planning and control being exercised, and it is learning and updating in pursuit of a goal as it interacts with those markets. And yeah. in billionaire empires... Uh, and and other you know kind of mega corporations Th these are kind of the largest um sustainable 
parts of the economy in terms of size. Yeah. Well, it's like you can do this with. Right. It's like if you if you try to do this sort of top down planned economy thing on the whole of economy using some bunch of bureaucrats in the state, it doesn't work. It's been tried. It's really messy. You have to kill a lot of people to get them to cooperate uh like it's it's a bad idea and so we use this factorization thing we use the market and then we see how big people are able to build these planned objects within the economy like these planned subsectors within the economy and and so that's like this is kind of the synthesis of the economic planning view and the market view is that you know amazon is a planned economy or it's a planned sub economy and it grows as big as it is fought it it, it it grows to the scale that at which it is feasible to do economic planning. And when when it reaches the limits of that scale, inherently the logic of the market takes over. So this is kind of an interesting synthesis of those views. I think this is, relates to something that I wanted uh, to bring up as well, which is we're kind of using uh, you know, this, this market planning and almost collectivist logic in our discussion here. Um, again, this is kind of grounded ultimately in Aristotle. You can't get out of the fact that that we are undergoing a or, or, or we are undertaking a collective enterprise in in society, and so we're kind of grounding it there, which makes it into this weird collectivist thing. And I think in the twentieth century, obviously, a lot of the regimes that tried to do various collectivism projects didn't work. They failed very bloodily, and 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 you know, with much poverty and and misery involved. And so I think. For for, on, for that reason, I think a lot of people have uh, obviously negative associations to kind of collective logic being deployed here. The other thing is, I think uh, there was actually not not just the I don't know PTSD from from uh, these these collectivist projects, but also I think there was a general lack of belief among in the capitalist world that what they were doing could be justified on social grounds. And so they stopped trying and they started justifying it. Like if you look at the kind of the rhetoric that the, you know, the the sort of big business libertarian kind of fiscal conservative narrative in the 20th century, if you look at that kind of rhetoric, it's it's trying to base things on this sort of sacralized vision of private property, sacralized individual rights, sacralized the market, and 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 not providing a, a deeper justification for those things, apart from some hand waving about Locke and and so on, and I, I think I think that comes from like a lack of faith in the justice of what they were actually doing, which is interesting because I think I, uh, the kind of claim that we're working our way towards here is that actually it is justified, but it's justified uh, through a kind of social collective logic or it can be justified through a social collective logic and and this is this is the thing that i'm finding very interesting to explore in this question is the degree to which you can actually ground these notions of individual rights of natural law uh private property the market these things broadly considered liberal you can ground them in very non-liberal kind of moral premises Right. There's a way where it's like, if you're already falling back on the logic of, oh, you don't have the right to stop me doing something, there's like a an implicit admission there that if you actually said the thing you were doing, people would not just rally to you, right? Right, right. Uh, they, they, you, they, there isn't actually a justice to what you're doing. 
Yeah, and I mean, I th- I think you see right, like, you know, t- to ground this a little more concretely, you know, let's let's think of the actual billionaires we have out there. There are certain billionaires who have kind of popularity cults and followings. Uh, like Elon Musk is obviously a, a major yeah, one, especially one. <laughs> on the West Coast. Um, but you know, when when you look at this sort of billionaire, or let's take Bill Gates, right? Let's let's take kind of one of these philanthropist billionaires. I think it's interesting that with these guys, what you see more is it it there isn't I've never really heard them defend their wealth or empires when they have to on grounds that like oh they have the right to it though they just say oh uh, I'm taking us to Mars or I'm curing malaria or you know these kinds of things like they say the thing that they are doing and I think there's kind of an assumption that it's like well if I'm obviously doing things that are like beneficial and glorious for the human species um obviously I should get to keep doing those things people will rally to me and people do in in fact rally to them um you know and and, you know obviously in 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 any case there are like there are critiques one can make about uh the structure how something is being used but in general they're able to get people to be fairly loyal to them as figures i think yeah i think people who can't who don't have that power you know maybe their wealth comes entirely from financial manipulation or some kind of like destructive you know oil or something i think oil Oil, yeah. uh, which isn't which isn't to say to that there's a long time. Like, I'm not going to say that there's something wrong with oil money. I mean, maybe the state should appropriate all the oil money because they're effectively no longer productive rents. But that's a whole separate question. But I'm not going to make the claim that like oil money is somehow bad. But I think sure. That, I'm making I, more I think, basic claim yeah, here about moral persuasion. Yeah. Right. No. Right. 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 On on a rhetorical level, the oil money doesn't have a great uh, understood social justification right now people don't like there's been a lot of kind of hate for the oil money throughout the last few decades and you know at least as long as i've been paying attention i've definitely seen this hate for the oil money thing and and so this is this is kind of meant that also those people will tend to uh not feel that they have the the kind of moral justice uh, aligned with with their money the way that someone like Bill Gates maybe uh, has that confidence, yeah. which isn't to say he actually does have the justice. That's a whole separate question, but he's able to make the case is the point. Well, and, and if you notice, right, when we actually start talking about forms of wealth, you start noticing that in at least on the, you know, the, 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 the tail ends of these things, there is not really a moral difference, again, in public or private, going to space uh, when a private individual does it they get a lot of support, you know, except for people who are on principle opposed to this being private enterprise driven. And when NASA does it, they also get a lot of support, except for people who, again, who have like a moral quandary about uh, government involvement in this. Yeah. Or, or oil, people who think that space isn't isn't important, right? Like or, there's... Yeah, yeah, right. But it's based on the actual goal. Whereas something like oil, it's not as if people who are against rich oil oligarchs are in favor of Gazprom or like state-owned oil companies. Right. Uh, they're usually against those as well. And so we, we've now finally gotten to the actual question of what is the wealth, what is being created, and how is it being used? Right. Uh, and I think it's interesting we actually do this in practice, but it is not translated. Yeah into the 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 framework that we used to talk about these questions. Yeah, well, this is something I, I've been thinking about a bunch recently is this question of legitimacy. How does legitimacy work in society? And 
what and and one of the observations you might make is is exactly that observation you're making which is that in practice when people are thinking about the legitimacy of things it's about what is this actually doing from a social perspective what is it actually accomplishing is it is it contributing to the vision of progress for society that i support is it part of the program the is it part of the plan or is it holding back the plan right like this is this mm -hmm. is the way people think about legitimacy uh, intuitively. And I think it's correct. I think that legitimacy is about basically, do we have consensus that this is part of the plan, like a capital P plan or whatever that happens to be. And, and so I think that's, that's kind of, I guess it's an aside here, but I think it, it relates and it's something to just keep in mind as we're discussing this whole thing. Mm -hmm. I think an another thing that I wanted to I don't know, another complication maybe is, is just let's talk about the question of rents. I think once you have a monopoly, legal or otherwise, sort of whether, whether that be, you know, again, granted by the government or, or granted by the, yeah, a, a natural monopoly defended by, you know, your ability to buy up competitors or outcompete competitor, outmaneuver the competitors or whatever. You have a nat you have a monopoly that the monopoly inherently also constitutes a rent it's a it's a rent extraction right. It's not a right in the sense of being a social right, but it's it's you have it's a power that you have. Yeah, it's right? a power. It's a rent. It, you have rents. you have the power to extract rents, and and as a power to extract rents, I mean this is this is inherent to what a monopoly is. And again, we we went back. We we kind of we gave our justification for why society has monopolies in it, in, in, both in property and and in these larger things like you've built this business, you are using this monopoly, you're planning the use of those resources, you're planning the use of those rents. So when we're thinking about rent seeking and extractive behavior from billionaires or from, from these large empires in society, we also have to think therefore, uh, we have to think carefully about, like I think, get, I think we have to get beyond just saying, oh, it's it's productive versus it's it's extractive, because often the extractive thing is an integral part of an overall productive operation. Right. Oh, I I want to really I I want to be. I'm sure there are people listening here who don't have a clear idea of what rents are. Right. So here we are talking about the ability of a person or an enterprise with, um, you know, market power. So they're not. Uh, dependent, they're not exposed to competition in the right. same way as just some corner store or a widget maker is. They can, they have control over the prices that they charge and even over sometimes over what they charge prices on. And so, uh, you know, when we're talking about rents, that is what we are talking about. It's income that is derived from prices beyond just, you know, what a, a perfectly competitive market might well, it's, um, impose it's, on you. It's, it's, I would say it's income beyond your costs. Or, or beyond like uh, some some aggregate notion of the cost, like yeah, like if I yeah, if I own a house, it's not if just I own a cost house in an accounting sense, right? In, right. If we're looking at economic rents, it's basically like the money that you're earning that is not uh, just necessary in the competitive marketplace. It's yeah. Um, you know, so if if I have a monopoly over oil, for example, uh, I can basically charge you as much as you are willing to pay, period. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I were involved in a super competitive marketplace, then I wouldn't have that much control over prices. I would have to charge, you know, something that you are willing to pay, but such that I don't lose your sale. 
right? Yeah. But uh, but I, so again, that like is the difference going on here, like in a in a competitive housing marketplace with restricted supply, which is you know our familiar situation in America, um, it is a competitive market. The landlord doesn't really have that much control over how much they charge you, but uh, you they charge you what you're willing to pay because uh, which which can often be quite high because you need housing and there's only so much of it and. And that would be something that I would count as a rent. So I just want to make sure that our definition actually includes that, the classic version of rent, which is housing rent. And and in housing rent, they don't have an arbitrary monopoly ability to set the price, but they do have this ability to just kind of extract uh, rental income from the thing as as a monopoly right over at least the use of that particular piece of property because, right. because the it's not possible to legally or otherwise to manufacture more supply to bring yeah. down the rents. And and it's I'm I'm happy you used that example because the reason this is important uh is that you know time was uh rent used to also be called unearned income. So yeah. rather than me uh you know getting income I I've created some product I put my labor into it I've somehow been productive and you the buyer have recognized that and have paid me a price for it. I am essentially earning income here from my control over resources, from my ability to lower competition and to exercise power over prices and buyers and so on. And so there's this question now, in what sense have I earned that income if it's not something that I've, you know, actively produced, it's something that I've kind of received without any labor behind it, essentially. Yeah. And with well, a billionaire... Uh, you you essentially almost by definition have an empire where you are able to generate various forms of yeah. sort of quote unquote unearned income. And yeah, like may, may, maybe is, you is maybe this... you built that in the past under your own power, but now it's uh, in in many cases it is effectively a a rent stream. Right. So, for example, Amazon right is able to use uh, its market power on against producers. Uh, this is an interesting thing yeah. with digital platforms. It used to be assumed that power was being exercised over consumers, over people buying your products. You can charge them more money. We're in this interesting situation now where, where the consumer is king and kind of people who are producing things are actually on the other side of this. But so yeah. the question for us is, okay, so we have these rents here. We have the power to charge rents. Are these always socially negative should we bust them wherever we find them or is this essentially a power that can be used in a pro-social way yeah well i i think i think again uh i have a usual rant that i give on this topic which is that rents and taxes are very closely related like t taxes are just the rents that can be extracted by coercive power um especially legitimate coercive power um, you know, because the government has lawmaking ability, it has also the ability to make a law that you need to give it money. That is effectively a rent. It, it has this rent power uh, that that it exercises through taxes. And so taxes are just a form of rents uh, or you could flip that around. Rents are just a form of taxes by right. by a distributed power class. 
Right. Um, so if you're generally in favor of taxes being used in socially good ways, then you could imagine uh, cases where actually right. maybe a billionaire should be allowed to charge rents. Right. Conversely, if you're against taxes as a fundamental principle, you should probably be in favor of trust busting every large company and billionaire out there. Right. Right. Because which the same which moral some question is at play? Right. And and some libertarians are are uh, consistent in their pursuit yes. of of trust busting and lowering taxes. However, I would I would put to them also that there are two things you can count on in this universe, and those two things are death and taxes. There is this is related to sort of the idea of the um, I don't know what, what how would you put this? It's it's the conservation of power, the conservation of sovereignty, or something. Yeah, something that there's like that. there's always almost always there exi- power exists there's almost always someone with the power to extract rents from you or the power to extract taxes from you you can't get around this if you got if you've gotten around it you've somehow achieved sovereignty you are probably that guy who is probably extracting rents from someone else because you have achieved enough power to be able to defy you have higher essentially powers. i would almost say that in a society where no one is able to extract any rents over anyone else um, and, and I don't mean by law, but somehow structurally unable to do this, you now essentially have the anarchist society. No one has power over anyone else in any way. Yeah, and this this is an interesting thought experiment. I mean, the anarchists have worked valiantly on trying to imagine it. Um, I don't think they have succeeded. I think like this is one of our big premises at Palladium is that actually the anarchist project did not succeed and rents, taxes, and power are here to stay. And the question now is, okay, this thing exists. You can't, you, you can't fight the power. There is the power. The power is there. We need to think now, therefore, about how do we use the power? And just, and, and so in that view, even trust busting is just moving the power around. Trust busting, building, building housing, you know, all these things, I think in many cases, very good things to do. But we have to understand that these are just moving the extractive power around, which isn't to say that the tax rate is always the same. You don't always have a 75% tax rate or a 10% tax rate or whatever. And I don't just mean the tax rate that, that the IRS takes, but the, the holistic tax rate of all the, the, the entire fraction of your efforts that are being extracted from you for someone else's purposes. But because of their power over you, and and that tax rate is considerably higher than the IRS tax rate, but it's not always the same. And this gets into this question of like the Laffer curve, you know, traditional kind of even back to Islamic kind of jurisprudence and and uh, statecraft theory is like you don't want to extract too hard because it kills the it kills the economy. People need to have control over resources to be able to do their productive activities that create yeah, the resources. There are that kind can of taxed. like just prices that you yeah. are permitted under under natural law or something right. like that to charge yeah. uh, just as there are, you know, just wages on the right. other side. Yeah, but, but I mean, it, the logic of justice there comes from the logic of long-term thinking on the part of power. If, mm-hmm. if you're sitting there as the person in power, you have the power to extract this rent, y- your long-term thought is, okay, I don't want to just squeeze this thing immediately. I don't want to, I don't want to just butcher the sheep. I want to shear the sheep so mm-hmm. that I continue to have sheep. Uh, I want there to be a strong economy that is doing productive things so that I am able to continue to extract uh, some off the top for for particular sharp purposes. 
Mm-hmm. And and this, I mean, that there's this whole other question of how to structure tax tax philosophy, I guess. We should get into that at some point. I think it's a little bit aside. Point being, the billionaires or other large-scale individual economic planners, they do often, uh, perhaps not always, but often, uh, no, maybe always, uh, have that power as a result of some uh, rent stream that they own, mm-hmm. and and this is this is an extractive thing. But the question again is, is that rent stream being used well? Mm-hmm. Is it being used appropriately? Is that the right way to organize the economy? And so this this is maybe I think we've done you know forty minutes here of of solid recap of theory on how do we think about this whole billionaire question and and the ultimate question that we're left with at the end is when is it justified to have this this large scale individual private wealth when mm-hmm. and and particular how we mean that justification is when is it uh socially productive and and when does it fit into a general holistic system of social production what are its responsibilities etc and this is the question i think we should explore and i, for I the think rest we should this. i i think we yeah and i think we can do that like just to start by answering the rents question there are i think two answers to this and the second one is the more important it hinges on this the first one is like this very simple you know are rents actually being reinvested in the venture itself obviously you know if you're just privatizing off the rents and putting them in a, a Swiss bank account or something, you're you're probably um, essentially a destructive force in the economy. You know, kind of purely hoarding wealth and not investing. It, is is that true though? Is that true? Let, let me let me give a counterpoint there. The Norwegian government takes the rents that it extracts from the oil and puts it in a sovereign wealth fund. Is that a, a purely But I think that is like the, the the point of the sovereign wealth fund is. To have a pool of investment that can be used right. for the country, like, I, but I mean, but isn't I, I, isn't I that the point people... of private finance as well? Is that you you are yes. kind of investing in just generally keeping the economy growing for the future? I, I'm using a kind of I do think in practice most people do at least some kinds of reinvestment, at least in storing wealth in this way. I, yeah. I'm kind of using an extreme example here to to make. This I, sort I, of I point think of I think the most you, the most the most obviously wasteful form is where you are purely blowing it on Ferraris and private jets for no particular reason. Um, I I don't even know if I'd agree with that. Like to be, you know, my contrarian take here is that like luxury luxury wealth spending, you know, I, I'm not gonna get into questions here about whether it can be somehow morally corrupt or to the person or something. I actually think that in social terms at least, luxury wealth spending is one of the less harmful ways uh that, that you can use wealth. Like Okay, it's, fair it's fair enough. More it, when it, you inflate. it just it just wastes the resources. At, at worst it just wastes the resources. It doesn't it doesn't yeah. Yeah, and, active and social problems. I, I think you can have like far more destructive ways of quote yes. unquote investing wealth, like in a way that's not productive reinvestment back into the enterprise, is when you're just doing right. like endless currency flipping. Uh, especially when you're able to control it at such a level that you start uh, having a pernicious influence on a society's economic life. Yeah, or, or, or if its you political invest life. It into yeah, right. Well, and I was going to say that, or when you invest it into um, the the sort of pure antisocial cause of like capturing the state or the polity 
for your private interests. Well, it right? doesn't. It doesn't even have to be pure antisocial, even even in intention or, or in effect. Like the, I think the key thing is that when you get up to this level where your wealth actually constitutes a political power and you're using it as political power, which inherently happens, uh, starts to happen at scale. As soon as you are operating a large piece of power machinery in society, you inherently end up with some political power simply because you are making lots of decisions. Some of those decisions affect the rest of society. And then the rest of society is going to come around and put pressure on you to make those decisions in a particular way. Yeah, yeah. And and or you are going to be tempted to make those decisions in a particular way because of their effect on the rest of society. Right, so this right. this creates the and the hold on, let me let me finish this thought. Go ahead. The the this creates a general political effect of large-scale wealth. Large-scale wealth is not just economics, it's politics. Right. And we've kind of led into the second the second answer there already, right? I, I in a sense I don't actually want to spend too much time on the question of like where do you reinvest your wealth? I'll I'll just say if billionaires were spending their time building beautiful palaces around cities and and giving us like you know, uh, Ferraris and stuff. It's like, okay, great. You know, maybe, maybe you at least maybe have something have nice them. to look at. Maybe you can nationalize them later on. At least you have something nice to look at. Um, right. I want to move more onto the second way of answering this. Okay, so even if you have an organization uh, in which that wealth is being reinvested, you now have to look at the question: How does that organization's production? How does the wealth that it creates reconcile with uh, the aims of the society in which it's operating? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and and so there's like the political part to that, and then there's a structural part that isn't political. So uh, the political part... Thanks for listening. We've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast. The second half is available on our Patreon. You can sign up at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. It usually gets better in the second half, so you don't want to miss it. This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.